I'm Martine Halverson-Taylor. And I'm Curtis Schaefer. And this is Sacred and Profane. Curtis and I are both professors of religious studies at the University of Virginia. And on this show, we explore how religions are a part of our daily and public lives, often in ways that we hadn't imagined. In the past, we've covered everything from the cultural power of an edict issued by Cyrus the Great over 2,000 years ago, to the rise of robots in Buddhist and Hindu temples, which have been left short-staffed by the COVID-19 pandemic. We cover a lot of ground, and this season we'll be focusing on the ways religions are a foundational part of Americans' relationship to the environment and to climate change. There is so much good journalism covering human impacts on the land, the environment, and the global climate. About the effects of fossil fuel use on our ecosystems and personal health. About the irrefutable science that shows how the impacts of global heating will only grow more extreme until we are able to use as little carbon as possible. About the people working to ensure there is a livable future for everyone on Earth. We've noticed that religion is sometimes treated as an afterthought in that reporting, as a force that reacts to the environment but doesn't have the power to shape our physical reality. That couldn't be further from the truth, as we'll hear in the upcoming episodes. Religions have actually played a key role in everything from the rise of industries that have caused immeasurable damage to our planet to the movements that are resisting fossil fuel expansion. Religions can offer us a way to imagine a different future. These stories may be challenging to listen to, but they are not stories about despair. We think they are important to understand how we got to this point and what our futures might hold. Religions are a way of passing on important stories, stories that shape how we see and understand the land we live on. And for our first episode, we're going to explore one particular religious framework that has shaped America's relationship with the land from the get-go, both in terms of the law and in terms of our own cultural values and norms. We could start this story in many places, but let's begin in what is now New York State, near the city of Syracuse. That's where Sandy Big Tree grew up. My name is Sandy Bigtree. I'm a citizen of the Mohawk Nation at Akwesasne. I was on the collaborative of the Scano Center, and I'm also on board with the Indigenous Values Initiative. And I have a whole story around my name, if you'd like to hear it. Well, my whole childhood, I was asked, oh, Bigtree, is that an Indian name? And actually, no, it's not. It's a Christian name. Big Tree is the name given to her family by American missionaries. But the first group of missionaries to arrive in that area were French Jesuits. When the Jesuits came into our territories, one of the very first things they did was they stripped us of our clan name. And that is one unique name that connects us to our particular clan and connects us to the land. When Sandy was growing up, she remembers the local historical society celebrating the brief time Jesuit missionaries settled in the area. In their telling, the Jesuits marked something important and revolutionary, the arrival of Christianity. 
But to Sandy and many native tribes like the Mohawk, the real legacy of the Jesuits' short stay was a piece of paper they brought with them. Really, the only thing the Jesuits brought was a deed to 600 square miles of land that include the sacred lake of Onondaga, what's now Syracuse and most of Onondaga Nation territory, which is an example of the doctrine of discovery. That's Philip Arnold. My name is Philip Arnold. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Religion here at Syracuse University and core faculty in Native American Indigenous Studies here. Uh, also the founding director of the Scano Great Law Peace Center at Onondaga Lake. What Sandy's talking about really in, in a nutshell is white supremacy and how it's connected to the church, specifically Christianity and its incursions into the, what we call now the Americas. Chances are, if you live in the United States, your hometown has a similar story. Maybe it's French Jesuits, or maybe it's English pilgrims, or Spanish padres, or American pioneers who arrived to settle a land that they viewed as unclaimed. That idea that settlers could own land that was very often already the home of native tribes is an essential presumption for colonists well beyond the United States. It was a cornerstone of European colonization across the globe. And it still affects how land is held and resources are exploited in many countries to this day. How did this become the law of the land in so many places, including the United States? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question, actually, but we'll, we'll try to make it simple. In 1452, a generation before Europeans began colonizing what they would call the New World, the Pope wrote a letter to the King of Portugal. He wanted Portugal's help in a crusade to defend the Christian Byzantines from the expanding Muslim Turkish Empire. That crusade didn't work out. But that letter, which granted Portugal's king some extraordinary permissions in order to raise money for a holy war, remained in force. So in 1452, the Pope at the time wrote a papal bull to the then monarch of Portugal that justified his raiding of West Africa for the taking of slaves and lands and material goods. And these indigenous peoples of Africa were seen as the raw materials for the, for again, the, the pushback against enemies of Christ. This papal bull said something that would have major implications as European powers began to colonize more distant parts of the world. It gave permission for Christian monarchs to enslave non-Christians and to seize their land and property. And then, of course, we come to Columbus, right? Columbus returns after his so-called discovery of the New World. Right. As he's uh, sailing back to Spain, he's writing to the monarchs of Spain that Gold has been discovered, and it was like um, six weeks after that letter was received by the monarchs that the Pope issued the papal bull in Tehran. This new bull, the Intercaterra, went even farther than that first letter, giving permission to pillage non-Christian lands. 
It said, in essence, that any land in the Americas that was not already inhabited by Christians was legally undiscovered and therefore up for grabs. The people, the land, the resources, all of it now belonged to good Christian monarchs in Portugal and Spain. The ultimate goal, on paper at least, was to convert people to Christianity. These bulls became the heart of a kind of imperial Christianity that encouraged colonization in order to convert. It's known as the principle or doctrine of discovery. You know, this is firing the imaginations of these monarchs as well as the Vatican. And the Pope who issued that uh, Intercatera was the infamous Borgia Pope Alexander, who was also a Spanish merchant. Yeah, it was a um, whole merchant family. Yeah. So you had this collusion then between the monarchs and then the Vatican to, and, and, and if you look at the early paintings of the conquerors entering the lands of the Americas or wherever else, you'll see both a cross being planted, usually by a priest, and a flag. And this is symbolizes the joint efforts of both the Vatican and the sponsoring monarch, who is kind of the, you know, the, the strong arm of this, this principle of discovery. They, they conveniently sanction the hierarchical nature of rulers in Spain and all around Europe at the time. So it's not like, you know, this is new. And this is all a kind of massive land grab. And this really is the origin of the transatlantic slave trade, extractive industries that we now see around the world. This way of claiming land is very different from the relationship that many native cultures had with their environment. Indigenous people had a very special relationship with the land. Nyawen Haskano, it means thank you for being well, but it's with the underlying understanding wellness in no way can be achieved unless you're in proper relationship with the natural world. Loyani is the, what we, the title that we give our clan representatives. It is not a hierarchical system. It represents men of the good mind, and the whole culture is about this sacred connection with the natural world and being engaged in this uh, regenerative uh, spirit and energy that gives us life, and we can partake of this life that surrounds us. And it was inevitable that these different systems would come into conflict. In the young United States, the question of who controlled land was particularly unsettled. In 1823, a case called Johnson v. McIntosh came before the Supreme Court. It's a complicated case, but the question at its heart was, now that the crown was gone, did Native peoples hold the ultimate title to land? Yeah, so Chief Justice John Marshall was kind of the genius. And when, when legal scholars talk about Marshall, they talk about his trilogy of decisions that ultimately ended up in the removal of the Cherokee and the Trail of Tears and those well-known devastating episodes in Native American history. But the first of the trilogy is Johnson v. McIntosh. What's clear is uh, many of the founding fathers, including Marshall, had vast swaths of land that were 
you could say, unprotected by the law. And so Marshall was trying to, in effect, clear title. He really pulls this kind of Catholic perspective that sanctions the age of conquest for the purposes of creating the Christian empire as a way of justifying clear title to the land. So that's why it's so fundamental to property law on the one hand, but it also, of course, dispossesses native people of millions of acres of once native lands. Of course, the worldviews are very different from one another. You know, as Sandy was saying, the native people don't really have a notion of land ownership per se. Uh, they have an understanding of land to which they belong, not an understanding of land which belongs to them. Right. So there's a there's a real sharp dis difference between worldviews between indigenous peoples and settler colonial. Well, right. We don't view we are not stewards of the land. We have no concept of that because we're part of the natural world. We are not in control of the natural world. Our very essence of life stems from this proper relationship that we have. Our medicines are provided us from the earth and it's a reciprocal relationship. So what Johnson v. McIntosh did, in addition to incorporating the doctrine of discovery into U.S. law, it also established that indigenous nations could only occupy the land they had lived on for thousands and thousands of years. They did not own it. So it was a step away from the original treaty agreements. And there is really no systematic link in how they arrived, you know, to that determination in U.S. law. It was just another effort to conquer. Johnson v. McIntosh has been held up as a precedent as late as 2005, when the Oneida tribe sued in an attempt to recover land taken from them in what's now New York State. You can kind of map the uses of doctrine of discovery right through. And as recently as uh, 2005, in the Oneida Nation v. Sherrill decision, the doctrine of discovery was cited in the very first footnote. Justice um, Bader Ginsburg's majority decision that if the Oneida Nation were allowed to purchase lands back that had been stolen, this would upset the doctrine of discovery, and therefore we'd have to re-examine the entirety of our property law in the United States. Sandy and Philip also point out that it's not just established law. The idea that white Christian settlers have the right to any land or resources they encounter runs deep in our culture. Manifest destiny, the idea that the U.S. is destined to control North America and to be a force for good in world affairs, still remains powerful in the American imagination. These ideas about who has legal control of the land have had a profound impact on both the U.S. and many formerly colonized nations. 
It means that people who have lived on that land for many generations still often don't have a say in how the land or its resources are used. And, and everyone that came here, they were taking our gold and silver. Our forests were all cut down. And all this was shipped over to Europe, our beaver pelts. There was just an incredible amount of resources that went into Europe. And it issued forth a whole renaissance. You see all these gold leaf, these magnificent buildings. Where do you think they got all that money? Or where do you think all that wealth came from? And yet today, Europe doesn't really talk about the Americas or Native Americans because they don't feel attached to it. But yet their very existence was propelled by the theft of our lands and resources. Not long after this conversation with Sandy and Philip, news broke that Pope Francis was formally renouncing the doctrine of discovery. His statement said that the original papal bulls had, quote, been manipulated for political purposes by competing colonial powers in order to justify immoral acts against indigenous peoples that were carried out at times without opposition from ecclesiastical authorities. In no uncertain terms, the Pope continued, the Church's magisterium upholds the respect due to every human being. The Catholic Church therefore repudiates those concepts that fail to recognize the inherent human rights of indigenous peoples, including what has become known as the legal and political doctrine of discovery. That's certainly a big shift on paper, and one that indigenous leaders and activists have been calling on for many years. But repudiating the doctrine doesn't mean that the Catholic Church will be giving back land or wealth taken from indigenous tribes. It also does not acknowledge the active role the Church played in colonization. The land that was granted to the Jesuits in what's now New York is just one of thousands of examples of the Church's involvement in European colonization. In 2015, Pope Francis himself canonized Junipero Serra, the priest who founded California's brutal mission system. The missions forced indigenous villages to labor to support church settlements and led to the deaths of at least 60,000 people. And in the U.S. at least, thanks to cases like Johnson v. McIntosh, the doctrine of discovery remains the law of the land, whatever the current pope may say about the matter. As our conversation drew to a close, Philip and Sandy reminded us that while the doctrine of discovery has dominated, other ways of thinking about the land and community haven't gone away. Some are even embedded in the U.S.'s very founding. I'd like to go back to the influence of the Haudenosaunee on Western democracy, because I think that story also illuminates many things. All through the 18th century, 1744, 1755, this uh, Onondaga leader named Gunasatego, who appears in many of the minutes in, in conversations with Thomas Jefferson and, and others and Independence Hall, he describes for the Founding Fathers the words of the peacemaker. And there's a famous discussion that, you know, if you can hold your union together, you are very strong. He takes one arrow and breaks it easily. 
right? Alone, you're weak. But then he takes six different arrows from six different fires and binds that bundle of arrows together with the sinew of the deer, the leader of the animals. He says, if you bind yourself together with the natural law, no one can break that bundle. The founding fathers developed a style of Western democracy from the Haudenosaunee, but they did not accept the role of women, the role of the natural world, which was fundamental to that message. So this is one of the hidden narratives in American history that we're trying to bring out at the Scano Center and in the Indigenous Values Initiative. And really to finish the job of the influence of the Haudenosaunee, to really, to really foreground what the Founding Fathers missed, uh, which has to do fundamentally with being in proper relationship to the natural world. That's fundamental to the, to the great law of peace and one of the things that the Founding Fathers missed. Well, um, you, know, you have to pay attention to the natural world, wherever you can make your voice be heard, that, you know, we need to protect our waters. And with the laws that have been established by the United States, we've got to approach governments here and, and hold them accountable for the devastation that's been, you know, on this, this beautiful earth. And I'd also like to add, women are the life givers and they have the closest relationship with Mother Earth because their very bodies produce life. And if we don't allow women to have voice during this crucial time, I question what kind of future we're going to have. I'm, I'm a fervent believer that religious studies and the history of religions has something to contribute to our looming catastrophes. You, you might ask yourself, well, how is it I came to be here? Theological questions of the nature of the sacred is what informs these different worldviews. We don't talk about it, you know, in those terms, but I think we see the, the consequences of it. For example, in the rise of white Christian nationalism now. I think by examining the doctrine of Christian discovery and its impact, we can think about these theological questions. I think there are a lot of people who understand that, to, as my teacher Charles Long said, we have to go through colonialism. We have to deal with the enslavement of African people. We have to deal with misogyny and the violence against women. All of these things echo in the doctrine of discovery. And so we're working on the future. We don't know what that looks like. There's always hope, but we have to address these foundational issues. Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. This episode was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. 
Our guests were Sandy Bigtree and Philip Arnold. You can find out more about the Scano Great Law Peace Center at scanocenter.org. And if you want to know more about how the Doctrine of Discovery has impacted indigenous communities around the globe, check out their podcast, Mapping the Doctrine of Discovery. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find out more about our work at religionlab.virginia.edu.